Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. We've just a week to go now before we're live on stage with the new show, Cocaine Cowboys. Final tickets on sale for Limerick, Cork and Dublin from mcd.ie, our venues. He was right at the heart of the the IRS internal security unit. But also there's a suggestion that in some of these killings that he sacrificed, if you like, people who either weren't informers or were quite low down informers, people who had limited access to information. But he knew that the IRA was suspicious that there was someone who was an informer and on some occasions these people may have been sacrificed to save him, to save his own skin. I'm Nicola Talent and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. Northern Ireland's much-anticipated Canova report is set to be released next month after confirmation that no prosecutions are to be pursued. The report centres around the activities of the notorious Freddy Scappatici, the British Army's top agent in the North during the Troubles. Today, I'm talking with Belfast Telegraph crime correspondent Alison Morris about the incredible story of Steak Knife and the allegations that his handlers turned a blind eye to murder and to torture by the infamous Nutting Squad. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. So this decision not to prosecute the army handlers and the two former IRA men in connection with the number of murders and kidnappings uh, which were central to this Canova report is going to be disappointing for them. But I think you've always sort of suggested that this was what was going to happen. You said that there was a problem with kind of bad file keeping really from, from the origin. Yes, whether it was intentionally bad file keeping or whether it was just a product of the time. But so the, the public prosecution service this week, as you said, they have said there's going to be no prosecution of two guys who were actually handlers in the early 80s um, for the Force Research Unit, which was a sort of shadow, shadowy um, subsection of um, British military intelligence. They were behind a lot of what would be considered collusive activities that went on here in Northern Ireland, but they were also the handlers for the informer known as Stickknife, who we know to be Freddie Scapatichi, who died last year. So they had been referred by the Operation Canova team to the prosecution service. There was files sent 
And there was also then files sent into other suspect three and suspect fours they referred to, and they were two alleged IRA people who had been involved in some of these um, murders that were under investigation. So the public prosecution service have said that there would be no prosecutions. They give quite a lengthy reason why. But basically, a lot of what they call, and he's referred to throughout the document as the source. So the source is Freddie Skeptici. So they're saying why he passed some information on, um, not all of it was maybe fed back to where it should have been, that his or his handlers were feeding it back to the RUC, but the RUC hadn't acted on it in some occasions. Um, and also some of it was based on hearsay. So maybe the source or Freddie Skeptici wasn't directly involved in the abduction and murder of someone, but he would have known because of his ro- role that these mur- murders were going to take place. He was a member of the IRA's internal security unit, the ISU, which is otherwise known um, as the Nutton Squad, which is basically they were responsible for rooting out alleged informers, abducting them, taking them away, interrogating them, and in many occasions executing them. Um, they were also then in charge of if an op- IRA operation went wrong and they believed something had been compromised, well, then the internal security unit was called in and they went through it step by step to try and see where the leak was. Um, was it an informer? Was it bad luck? What what other intelligence that the would the RUC have had at the time? And so can you you can imagine if you're a member of the internal security unit and you're investigating operations gone wrong, well then you have to know everything. And you'd have been the only they'd have been the only people who would have known all of that information because the IRA work worked on um various different aspects. Various people would have known some things. Other people would have known some other things, but very few people knew everything. Um, only the Army Council would have known everything and if something went wrong, the internal security unit. So you can see why Freddie Scapatishi was such a valuable asset to military intelligence. He was right at the heart um, of the, the IRA's internal security unit. But also there's a suggestion that in some of these killings that he um, sacrificed, if you like, people who may either weren't informers or were quite low down informers, people who had had limited access to information, but he knew that the IRA were suspicious that there was someone who was an informer and in some occasions these people may have been sacrificed to save him, to save his own skin. It sounds like these would have been some of the dirtiest secrets of the Troubles if this had have ever come to court that would have been spilling out. I mean, you're talking about literally the suggestion that some RUC officers were sitting back knowing somebody was about to get tortured and killed and did nothing about it. Well, within this, and these are things that we sort of knew already, but this just puts more detail to them. We know that one of the people who was abducted as an informer, that the source, Freddie Skeptici, said, he's been abducted, I'm going down to a house. He travelled across the border. He was in a, This guy was being held in a house across the border. He was interrogated. Then Freddie Skeptici comes back to Belfast. He immediately tells his handlers what happens. The handlers then say, that, and there's, there's documentation to show that they then reported this to the RUC special branch. The special branch had said that the... Um, that they believe through their other intelligence that the IRA were just going to, you know, let this guy go. They were going to, you know, reprieve him and let him return to Northern Ireland. So they didn't bother telling the guards and then they didn't bother going and rescuing him and the fellow then was found dead. One of the other interesting, this is what I'm actually sitting writing about today, mm. is the, the victims in this case are anonymized as well. But one of the victims, it's, it's fairly easy if you know sort of background to this to work out who's who. So one of the, the victims, a guy called Vinti Robinson, he had been, um, allegedly, he had been earmarked as an informer by another guy called Peter Valente. 
who had been um, abducted and murdered the previous year. He is said to have named other people who he believed were informers as well. This guy's abducted his kilt and his body is thrown into a rubbish chute in the, the Divis Flats complex. Um, for anyone who doesn't know, the Divis Flats complex, I can only describe it probably like the old Ballymun Flats. You know, it was a sprawling, sprawling um, flat complex. Very, very, you know, as was Ballymun and other places were, you know, a victim of very bad town plan. And at the time, you know, these places were meant to be the dream homes of the future and they just turned into complete and utter slums, were badly maintained, all of that. Um, and he was thrown into the rubbish chute for the flats and he was found there. But the two people who dumped his body there, they're driving away and a few minutes later, they're stopped at an RUC checkpoint. Now, one of them, and this is the person called Suspect 3, who the PPS have said they're not going to charge. It doesn't mention the fact in this that there was another man in the car, but we know there was another man um, in the car, and that man was called Paddy Monaghan, who has since deceased. He was a very senior member of the IRA's internal security unit, and both of them were covered in blood. <laughs> Paddy Monaghan's shoes and trousers were covered in blood. This other guy had blood in his trousers. It says in this document that he provided the RUC man the checkpoint with an explanation and was allowed to travel on, and then when he was arrested a few days later, the um, bloodstained trousers could be recovered. What actually happened is these two have dumped this fellow's body in a rubbish chute. They're driving away, they're stopped, they're covered in blood and um, they're waved on because the inference is that Paddy Monaghan was also an informer within that IRS internal security unit. And, you know, I spoke to a lot of Republicans this week about this document and just going through bits and pieces with it. And they said that Paddy Monaghan dined out on that story for years, you know, when he was out drinking with other IRA men, he'd tell them, oh, and I said this and I said that, and the cop weighed me on, and there's me covered in blood. Hmm. Um, when all along, you know, the inference is that the cop was told to wave him on because um, Paddy Monaghan was one of theirs. He was working for them as an agent. So the, the families of these people will know who they are, despite the fact it's anonymized. And some of these details will be really, really difficult, I think. Them to stomach and swallow in terms of could their loved one have been rescued? In some cases, it appears there was enough information that they maybe could have been rescued. Some of these people were rescued and clearly rescued in information that was maybe provided by sources. Um, and a lot of them then spoke to the Canova team but said that while they're willing to speak to Canova, they would not be willing to give evidence in any court mm. um, at any time in the future. And others then, despite you know, who had been maybe kneecapped or had other, had other things done, had said no, that they wouldn't um, speak to Canova at all. So the Canova report we're going to get next month in its entirety. This is like a supposed teaser, like a little tester of what's in Canova. So this is just the Public Prosecution Service has to give us the decision on all of those files before Canova can be released. So there, we're moved right up now. This, this current, um, these current uh, people who they've said they're not charged, they take us up to 1984. And then there are other um, incidents that happened from 1984 to 1990. And it is my understanding that after 1990, Scapatishi, the source, was no longer in that area, internal security unit. Suspicions came upon the whole unit. The whole unit was stood down. So we'll get those decisions before the end of the month in the prosecution service. I'm not expecting anyone to be prosecuted for any of this, to be honest. Mm. And then the actual Canova report in its entirety will be released and that will be something that, you know, the people like myself will spend a very long time going through line by line to see because there's, you know, there's a number of things in that that I'm very curious to see what Canova actually managed to find out. And did they get access 
We've been told that John Boucher was given access that no one else has ever been given before to those intelligence documents, but we'll know that when we see Canova. So are you likely to, as you go through Canova, there's no, you know, the people are going to be uh, named under numbers or whatever. Are you likely to be able to name anybody that hasn't previously been named, identify people, you know, perhaps identify the suspects three and four who are clearly still alive. Um, is that what you're expecting out of it? I mean, the thing about it is, is that no one's ever really truly anonymous in these things. So you use jigsaw identification, you know, for instance, in this, if it says one victim was missing for two days, he was reported, found two days later, his body found close to the border in 1981. Well, that narrows that down to about one person. Do you know what I mean? So you're able to work, mm-hmm. work it out. There. And the same thing with the suspects, because you can say, well, if that suspect was a part of that unit of the IRA at that time, um, who then were they then at a later point in time? Were they it'll say that maybe they were arrested? Well, no people who've been arrested. Well, no, so you can you can work it out. Obviously, legally, if that person ended up never being charged with anything, um, it means that we probably couldn't name them. But a lot of these people went on to serve significant periods of time in prison, and which which point they, you know, they will be named and should be named. So it's um, you know, it's it's been a long time coming. Mm. And the thing about Canova is it's been held up as an example of how we could maybe do information recovery in this place in a good way, in a way that would give people correct answers. Um, but we don't know that because we haven't seen Canova, but mm. we will very soon. So now Scapatici, who's at the centre of this, a very odd character, um, you know, there has been suggestions as to why he became an informer. Um, it didn't seem like a clear route for him, but there have been suggestions that maybe there was information around his private life that he wouldn't have liked coming out and he was convinced to kind of operate as an informer. Um, He died, I think, in England. He died last year in England. He'd been living in witness protection since he fled Belfast back in, I think it was 2003. He was unmasked at that time by the journalist of the Sunday People and named in the Sunday papers. At the start, he tried to sort of write that out. So what he did was he gave a, a press conference to two journalists. He denied that he was that. And then he got his sort of local paper to, to go on um, to do a sort of charm offensive and say this was all, you know, media dirty, dirty tricks. Said that, you know, this is the media just don't like people from West Belfast, don't like Republicans, and this is all lies. No, it's not true. And there I knew it was true. Because there I stood him down in 1990. So he tried to write that out for a bit. We are told that within a day he had flown over to England. He had met with his um he had met with his handlers. They had said that look, the there's the areas on ceasefire, they're totally well into these peace talks. They can't kill you. He tried to come back and see what he could do, and then he disappeared again. We're actually told that there was party hell for him in a, a army um barracks in England because he was such a valuable agent to them as a, a thank you for his many years of loyal service. And then he um he disappeared into witness protection and we know that he was living for a while in the north of England. Um, journalists from the now defunct news of the world using their, you know, what they became known for, their typical uh, basically phone hacking, found out where he was. Right. I, I understand that that Friday Scapatish got quite a large compensation claim for the news of the world for hacking his phone, which is mad. Like, How did they get his number like? So his, his wife was um, staying in contact with him and she was making calls to him I think from like a phone box or something somewhere and they found this out and they had bugged that and then they managed to get his number and they had someone sitting outside the house and they were going to do this big expose on him but then Scapatishi managed to get an injunction so it's into the high court and said this would put his life at risk and he basically perjured himself and said he wasn't an informer at that time but the high court 
that judgment then stood. It meant that we couldn't publish any pictures of him after the time when he was outed. So any recent pictures, even though we believe he showed up um, at the funeral of his father at one point, not so long ago, and there was photographs taken of him in the graveyard, but we were told we weren't allowed to use those. Um, and you weren't allowed to say where he was living. So that obviously that order died with him, you know, that uh, um, anonymity order. And so he was living in, in Guildford and sort of stockbrokers for this quite quite a fancy sort of middle class area of Guildford in this very nice house. Um, he had a girlfriend apparently at one point, and despite the the fact that um, he clearly had a lot of money that was paid to him for his years of uh, service and being an informer, I think it's a, a friend had said he stickered like a Pizza Express or something, which I wouldn't. You know, if you're living off the states and informer money, you'd expect at least. You know. A, I'm not talking the Ivy, like, but I mean something a bit better than the Pizza Express. But yeah, <laughs> money. Um. Anyway, so he he kept himself to himself. When he, when all of this came out around Canova, he disappeared then out of that house again and moved on somewhere else. Um. He was using the name Michael, I think, at the time when he was living in um in witness protection. So he he lived a fairly comfortable life until the end of his days, unlike the people who had been his victims. But the only thing he was ever convicted of. He was never also convicted of any of these murders because Canova was never finished by the time he died. Mm. He was convicted of having extreme pornography, including images of bestiality, um, which were taken when his computers and stuff were seized. You know, I'm told by people who knew him that he was he was probably very well got among RA men who didn't suspect him as being an informer for a long time, but he was quite a cruel mm. man, cruel man in his own home as often these people are. Um, he seemed to get quite a sadistic pleasure out of what he did. He had a methodology that he used. He would have, you know, tortured people and then he would have told them that it kept them awake for days on end, um, stripped them naked, put heads over their head. And then he told them, look, you can just go home if you confess. And he'd have recorded these confessions. Um, and then they would have been um they'd have been murdered. Anyway, yeah, anyway. So he obviously sort of enjoyed that role, but um, did he, he obviously, this is probably a stupid question, but he, Canova were never able to get at him or to talk to him. He wasn't ever going to admit anything. Several times. Um, did. He him several times. And I think he cooperated with them because as fully as you can, because you can see even just from the snippet that we've got, when it says the source, which is him, it's the source told or the source said or the source. So, Clearly, he's done quite a significant debriefing with the Canova team. The The question is, was he ever going to be charged? Because remember, we're told that he was being run from the highest level of, of um, the British military. And in fact, at some point, they even said that Margaret Thatcher knew of his existence. Um, so if all of that was true, was he ever, what, if he was charged and faced spending what little time he had left of his life in prison, would he not have used that to say, well, if you're going to bring me down, I'm bringing you all down with me. And mm. I'm not sure it's ever going to be allowed to have, to have happened. He was, you know, um, he was a, you know, the, the, the son of an Italian um, Italian immigrant family, a family who had moved to, to Belfast. He lived in the market area of Belfast, very, very promising footballer. He had trials with um, professional teams in England, but was told he was just a bit of a homebody and didn't like it and returned home after after a few weeks. And, you know, sort of slightly unremarkable, I suppose, life. He lived quite a comfortable life in, in the Riverdale area of West Belfast and, and, you know, he had a lovely home. But then he was a bricklayer and, you know, trades always had a few quid about them anyway. So, you know, he was able to get away with it that. We were told at that time, if you go back to 
the beginning of when he was informing he was getting around 90 to 100,000 pounds a year, which by then standards in the early 80s is a significant sum of money. It's a lot of money. Was that what attracted him to it then, do you think? Or I, think, I, I don't believe any of, of the stories about him being compromised because none of them seem serious enough to mm. compromise and do that. I do think that he had a bit of a, a gripe, a bit of a grudge against certain members of the IRA. He clearly didn't like Martin McGuinness, but I do think that he was motivated by self-gain and money and he actually quite liked the whole sort of James Bondy spy, you know, I'm doing this, but nobody knows I'm doing it. I'm putting a finger and saying that guy over there is doing it when really it's me. You know, I think he enjoyed that part of it. He sort of felt he was outwitting everybody um, as he was going along. Now, would he have been worried in the last years of his life about Canova, about the possibility of being prosecuted, do you think? He may well have been. And I know that once his, his wife had always kept in contact with him, but I know that once she died, you know, most of his family had disowned him. Um, so I do think that he was quite a sort of lonely figure in his later point in life. You know, there was the only people he had for friends were his former handlers. You know, the people who um, he had been associated with who members of military intelligence. He had to leave his life in Belfast behind. He would have been, I'm assuming, concerned about the level of what was going to come out. But at the same time, I do think that he was savvy enough to know that the 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 fact that so many people at such a high level knew what he was doing, that that offered him a degree of protection. And also remember that even by some bad, you know, strange chance that someone is convicted of this, at that point they would have only ever have served two years in prison because as part of the Good Friday Agreement, the Sentencing Act was changed in the early release of prisoners. So if you're convicted of something that happened before 98, you only serve two years. More recently, the Sentencing Act has been altered again as part of our new, the new Troubles and Legacy Bill, a very controversial bill that nobody's in favour of, to take that to zero. So anyone who's convicted of anything that happened before 98, they'll have a conviction and they'll be on licence, but they won't serve any prison time. So his voice, which will be coming through the Canova report as source, this will be the first time you've kind of heard from him since that press conference when he yeah. denied that he was steak knife. Yeah, and I mean, there was, you know, um, the two journalists, it was it was Brian Rowan and, and Anne Cadwallader were the two journalists who were called down into his solicitor's office to do that that day. And they have spoken about what a bizarre, you know, set of circumstances that was at the time. You know, there's pictures of a man and when you, you, you see the pictures now, he did look spooked like, you know, I think he looked like he was slightly concerned. If what the, the, the IRA are saying was true, he was stood down in 1990 after uh, an operation was compromised. It was a guy called Sandy Lynch, who was an alleged informer, was being held in the house in Anderson Um, Danny Morrison, who was then the Sinn Féin director of publicity, said he arrived at that house to host a press conference because Sandy Lynch had told him that his handlers told him to set up these other two IRA men from North Belfast. They said they were going to get him to say this on camera. Um but just as they entered the house, the house was was raided by police. They were all arrested. They all got convicted. Their convictions were later overturned, but they were convicted at the time and sent to prison. They say that was in 1990 and that he was stood down then. So for 30 years, say, he had lived a life which was maybe outside of the IRA, but not everyone knew that. So he would have still, and I can remember seeing him around West Belfast, he'd have still had that sort of, you know, that sinister, ominous, you know, I'm, the, I'm you know, an IRA. And people would still believed him to be a senior IRA and it wouldn't have crossed him, I suppose, in, in that respect. Um, but we're told that members of the IRA and senior members of the IRA knew that he had been stood down under a cloud of suspicion right from that time. Um, that's disputed by some of the victims' families who claim he was involved in the abduction of their loved ones 
much, much later after that, you know, right into the, the mid and uh, the early and mid 90s. But, you know, Canova will tell a tale. We'll mm. see. How long has Canova been underway? Over five years now. So, so it's like a massive trial, essentially, except it'll be contained within this yeah, report. A full team of investigators. It was headed up by John Boucher, who's now the new chief constable at PSNI. Um, it was a huge undertaking. We were told that he was allowed access to things that nobody else has ever seen, documents that no one else has ever seen. Um, and this was all had to be carefully pieced together like, like a jigsaw. And so, you know, it will, I suppose, be the story of our conflict in terms of how it was managed and how people were managed and how mm. our old that took place. But I mean, every day here, you know, something else happens that moves us slightly towards normalisation, like just today. I stood up in Garnerville in PSNI training headquarters and watched when Michelle O'Neill, the Sinn Féin First Minister, showed up at our very first um, graduation of new PSNI officers. Sinn Féin had never attended those things before. And that, I suppose, was normal. And then that happens and then you get a report like this and you realise just how abnormal a place this was and how abnormal our policing system was. But, um, you know, it's always good with an end and the past, but it's always good to to look forward as well. And you're obviously not surprised that there's no prosecutions in these cases anyway, and I'm sure the families are very disappointed, but are you expecting what is in Canova to be, like, is it going to shock you? Are you going to be, are you going to know there's it? A lot of very, there's probably a lot of quite worried people in relation to what's in Canova. I think that there'll be a lot of this that has been picked over before. A lot, Some of it will be completely new. There'll be revelations. There'll also be people who know that you can jigsaw identify who they are through this. And if they're also then um, on mass as being sources or informers, well, then that can be, be quite uncomfortable. And it's also quite uncomfortable, I think, for that old leadership of the IRA, some of whom are now, you know, have moved on into Sinn Féin because the, the, the level of infiltration is, is, you know, it has to be an embarrassment to them. And you see, the thing about it is, this is the really... And I, I say this as someone who comes from that community. Every one of these victims was from a nationalist Republican community because the majority of them were IRA members who were accused of being informers. And the shame and the stigma of that stayed with them, which, which is why they don't give interviews. You don't see these families coming out and speaking. Mm. In the main, some of them have, but in the main, most of them have remained you know, behind their solicitors and let their solicitors do the talking for them. Because they've carried with it a great stigma. Their funerals were held, you know, early in the morning with maybe, you know, a handful of family members, you know, and they were whisked off quietly to be to be buried. Um, in some cases they were never spoken. I remember years ago speaking to one family of a man who was killed and he had been, you know, a young father at the time and they were saying his children were just never told. You know, they were told how their father died because they didn't want that embarrassment mm. and shame following them around because it was in a, a stigma to be in a police informant at that time. So I think for a lot of them, I really hope that it gives them some sort of peace that they know that, you know, that there were victims and, and they have nothing to feel ashamed of. And also in some of the cases where people were falsely accused and their families know they were falsely accused, um, for them it might be, you know, vindication and maybe it could help with their healing in some way. I mean, I know nobody ever, I hate when people say, well, help them draw a line in the past, mm. get closure, and you get closure after losing someone in such a violent way. but. I hope that it does help and you know it gives a greater understanding and you know historians in years to come will study these reports and they'll look at it and it's the story of our conflict and the story of our troubles and as I said you put that there alongside current events so you know Michelle O'Neill and Jerry Kelly a former IRA prisoner were standing today in a police 
you know, in a police training college, watching my six new officers graduated. Um, you know, if you'd have told me that was going to happen 25 years ago, I'd have thought, wise up to yourself. What about John Boucher? How's he getting on in his new role? He seems to be doing well. He's not doing any big sit-down piece interviews until after Canova, because obviously, he, you know, he doesn't want to be seen that that's a conflict of interest. But I noticed that there's, you know, there's a different attitude about the place. There's a different atmosphere. With a policing board meeting last week or the week before, sorry, and it was incredibly, you know, positive in terms of what his plans are and what he's planning to do. We have an executive back up and running again, so the extra money that he needed should be coming his way very soon. Um, he's going to start recruitment again because officer numbers are so low, you know, improving morale, all of that sort of thing. And then it's, you know, improving the the, the confidence of the public. And Michelle O'Neill, I asked her about that today in terms of nationalist, you know, confidence in police. And she'd said that she hoped by her being there at something like that, that it would give people confidence and encourage young people who want to become members of the PSNI mm. that they can, you know, that the, a career that's open to them. Because a lot of times I still think that, you know, young people from a Catholic nationalist background don't consider that, or if they do want to be police officers, they tend to go somewhere else and do it, you know, to go to England or Scotland or because they just don't feel that they can do it here. And hopefully that will change. So how is this Canova report going to be released? Will we have the usual little bit of a drip feeding of it in the run up to? You know something, it reminds me of, we had those big inquiries, you know, the big sort of Billy Wright, Rosemary Nelson inquiries. And they used to lock you in a room and hand you, take your phone off you and leave you there for two hours with a notebook. And then you're meant, you're meant to miraculously, you know, emerge in this room being an expert on something that's about, you know, freaking 3,000 pages long. So I imagine it'll be done in that sort of controlled, controlled way. And, you know, there's nothing journalists hate more than being locked in a room without a phone. It gives me anxiety. You oh, completely. And it sounds like something, it sounds like cramming for your leaving cert. I mean, this is going to be, you know, hundreds of pages long, yeah? Yeah, oh God, yeah, hundreds and hundreds of pages long. And so, yeah, I imagine it'll be something like that. We'll get it that day. There'll be an embargo on it and then we'll have to go out and present it to the world as if we know exactly everything that's in it. And we'll spend, just like all those other reports, you know, time and any time we have going through it and looking for where the big lines are and where the big stories are. Um, but, you know, journalists hate being locked in rooms. I was tweeting today because they locked me in a room in Carnival <laughs> with all the other reporters and I was not happy about the whole situation at all. Now, did they actually lock you in there? I thought I was being detained. Um, but yeah, they eventually let us out for the press conference and I was able to, able to go home then. So will Canova eventually be published for everyone to read? Yes, you will be able to read it, I would say. We get hard copies of it and they are usually few and far between and quite scarce. And you have to keep a hold of those because people steal them on you um, for their own archives. But if it gets, you'll get a hard copy of it, I assume, on the day. And then it'll be put onto the website so that anyone can will be able to access it and read up. And finally then, just as regards, say, for example, Suspect 1 and 2 who aren't going to be prosecuted, they were members of the Force Research Unit, the handlers. Like, they'll never be identified, will they? I mean, you're talking about you're going to be able to see who's who as regard the victims, uh, regards the sources, regards the suspects. But those handlers remain completely anonymous. Yeah, you'll, you'll never find them. I would say members of their own family don't even know that's what they did for, for a living. Um, in many cases, they'll think that, you know, there were ordinary police officers or whatever are members of the military. But yeah, um, and, you know, they'll take a lot of that. They'll take to their, their grave with them. Um, you know, you never get to find out. And that's. I suppose the, the thing about when we see this kind of in-depth look, this this PPS report that we got this week actually gives the structure of how they worked and 
you know, what rank each one holds and what their duties were and who they would report back to and all that time. And that was an interesting sort of wee glimpse behind the scenes. But yeah, they'll never. And remember, these are probably quite old men now. Mm. All of them are probably quite old men. You know, there were probably people who were maybe in their, um, who were maybe in their thirties, possibly even forties, come back to, to nineteen eighty. So you know, they'll not be. You know, that makes them about seven in their seventies. Nineteen eighty to me sometimes sounds like about a week ago. I know. Realize that it was a very, very long time ago. Do you remember the hairstyles? Did you have a bat wing jumper? I had a pink shell suit as well. Yeah. I also had a Kylie Minogue perm. That was one of the biggest mistakes I think I made around that time. I think I did a perm at one stage as well. Yeah, chemicals going into your hair. I think I did that, yeah. It was like, I just think all the photographs from the 1980s should be burned. There's nothing attractive about the 1980s. And of course... Before filters. Absolutely. And of course, you had to wait then until the pictures were developed. Do you remember that? Exactly. We're really going down memory lane here now. But like if you went on holidays or something, you'd take your camera and you take the pictures to get home, leave it into the chemist and hope for the best. I'm going to walk up you a picture of me that my mother found and gave to me last week. <gasps> me around that time and the hairstyle. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those eras to be left behind. So all else good in... Everything You're, else is great, yeah. Yeah, good. Things are more positive. We've got a government eventually. Everything's going well. Yeah, and it's Friday. It is Friday, which means, you know, what time it is, Nicola. Yeah. Wine. I know, I know. I cannot wait. Anyway, I'll talk to you next week. Thanks a million, Alison. No problem. Talk soon. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. Research assistant is Claude Amini. If you like this show and love true crime, leave us a review. Or why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe. Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take the Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume the Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume the Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary.